Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, the host of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Heather Blair about her recent book, Real and Imagined, The Peak of Gold in Heian, Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2015 as part of its Harvard East Asian Monograph series. This book explores a religious and institutional history of Kimpusen, a mountain in central Japan that served as both a pilgrimage destination for aristocrats from the capital and as a site for mountain asceticism. Focusing her attention on aristocratic male lay patrons, women were barred from climbing the mountain, she shows how the urban elite saw the mountains, and in this case specifically Kimpusen, as the capital's opposite, as an untamed place to which one might go to gain something not accessible in the ordered world of the city of Heian-kyo, modern-day Kyoto. And she describes how some understood the pilgrimage to Kimpusen to correspond to the path to awakening, thereby practicing what Blair calls spatial soteriology. A central theme in this book is the difficulty of neatly fitting Kimpusen into a single category, such as Buddhist or Taoist. An illustrative example would be the mountain's multifaceted tutelary deity, Zhao, who is not easily categorized and who played an important role in linking Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to Japanese deities. In addition to looking at how Kimpusen was imagined, Blair devotes about a third of the book to records of pilgrimages to the mountain and activities undertaken on the summit. She provides us with rich descriptions of the preparatory rites and practices that pilgrims undertook for a period of some months prior to departure, of the offerings that were made during the nine-day journey to Kimpusen, and of the rituals performed atop Kimpusen's peak. Addressing the burial sutras, which was one of these rituals, Blair shows how on Kimpusen, sutra burial was tied to meanings and symbolism specific to this mountain and its principal deity, Zhao, and that in the evidence available from Kimpusen, there is little indication that anxiety about the decline of Buddhism, which is the basis for this rite most often mentioned in scholarly literature on the topic, was not a central motivating factor. With the decline of Kimpusen's main patrons, the northern branch of the Fujiwara family based in the capital, Kimpusen ceased to be a significant pilgrimage destination, 
In the final section of the book, Blair examines this process and the decades-long conflict between, between Kimpusen and a powerful temple called Kofukuji, and demonstrates how Kimpusen, rather than falling into ruin, was transformed as it shifted away from the capital's realm of influence and was incorporated into a network of mountains and Nara-based temples. Through the production of Engi, or Temple Origin Legends, Kimpusen was reimagined and eventually, in the 14th century, linked to the tradition of mountain asceticism known as Shugendo. While many have seen the religious practices carried out on Kimpusen and the production of these temple origin legends about Kimpusen and associated mountains during the 12th and 13th centuries as being somehow opposed to the large established monasteries and their interests, Blair shows that many of these legends were in fact produced and circulated within networks dominated by, or at least intimately tied to, the larger landowning temples. In so doing, she demonstrates that, that the distinction between lowland temple and mountain ascetic was not as clear as the rhetoric found in the legends would have us believe. In addition, through her own fascinating theory of what she calls ritual regimes, Blair clarifies how rulers used ritual and pilgrimage as means of communication and control. Besides being of obvious importance for the study of pre-modern Japanese religion and Buddhism, this work will be of particular interest to those working on mountains and religion, sacred geography, institutional history, and the interaction of religious traditions in East Asia. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Heather Blair, and we're going to be talking about her recent book, Real and Imagined, The Peak of Gold in Heian, Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2015. Heather Blair is Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University. Her research and publications focus primarily on pre-modern Japanese Buddhism and religion, and I should mention for our Japan Studies uh, listeners that she recently co-edited a very interesting special issue of the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies on Engi, or Temple Origin Legends. So, Heather Blair, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So, as is uh, usual, I... As a first question, I wanted to ask how you came to the study of Buddhism, uh, religion, and or Japan. Well, I think all three of them, I became interested in all three at the same time, and it was when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I had grown up in Seattle on the West Coast, where there are lots of uh, Japanese Americans. And yet, despite knowing lots of Japanese folks growing up, I, I never took much of an interest in Japan per se. And then when I was in college, um, I was not a particularly well-directed student. Um, <laughs> and I, I happened into uh, an art history class taught by a professor named Mary Beth Graybill, who is now a curator at the Portland Museum of Art in Portland, Oregon. And I really liked her a lot and she drew me in in part to the study of art history, but also to the study of Japan. And so after that initial encounter, I ended up taking um, another course with her and then writing a thesis with her, declaring a major in Asian studies. But I think the, the really important event was when Mary Beth asked me, this is, I'm, was in my senior year, she said, Heather, what are you doing after graduation? And I said, I don't know. And she, she came up with a plan 
for me. Uh, she had been contacted by a university, Konan University in Kobe, and this was after the Hanshin earthquake, which was this devastating earthquake in Kobe and uh, Osaka. And so it was one year after the earthquake, and Kobe, as, a, as the entire city, was really working to rebuild. And Konan University, as a sort of a symbol of rebuilding, wanted to roll out uh, new elements or, or new um, liaisons in their foreign exchange programs. Hmm. Uh, and so they had contacted Mary Beth uh, to try and recruit U.S. students to, to spend a semester in Kobe. Uh, and so Mary Beth uh, basically arranged it so that I could participate as a post-baccalaureate student. So I graduated um, and then I went to Japan with several other students who were currently doing their undergraduate degrees. Hmm. Uh, and I did a semester of language study um, in Kobe, stayed with a host family. Uh, and that was what really sealed my interest in Japan. Um, it was the first time I had been to Japan. I loved it. Uh, but it also made me realize that I had um, a much more robust interest in Japan's religious culture than I had realized. Mm-hmm. And the way that 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 worked was the family I was staying with lived um, on the foot of Rokosan. So Kobe has this uh, low mountain range um, that kind of backs the city. There's this narrow littoral strip of sort of flatland um, down at sea level. And then these mountains pop up. And in my free time, I would go hiking in the mountains. Uh, and then on the weekends, I would take the train into Kyoto, and I loved to walk in the hills around Kyoto, and I joined an outing club, the Kansai Outing Club, uh, <laughs> and they ran regular um, hiking trips. And so I went to Mount Koya uh, with them and did an overnight hiking Mount Koya in the snow uh, and a number of other um, trips like that. I climbed Mount Atago in Kyoto with them, um, and that really turned me on to religion. And the way that that worked is this. When you climb a mountain in Japan, at the top, a lot of the times what you're going to find is a temple or a shrine. And I found that fascinating. And I didn't know anything about these temples or shrines. And I was deeply curious about them. Uh, And so I I took that curiosity home with me. Uh, And so it took me a while, but I did end up going to graduate school. But I started out in museum studies Um, which didn't work out for me very well. I just, I found it fairly boring, honestly. Hmm. And so when I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do as a master's student, I realized, well, the thing that I was really interested in was Japan. And then in Japan, I was interested in religion. And so I ended up uh, transferring into the religious studies program. Uh, It was actually comparative religion at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. And it was really from there, it took, you know, so this is, I'm, you know, I was in a a master's degree program when I finally figured this out. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really clicked for me. It worked very well. Uh, I had great teachers there. And from then on, I I had kind of found what I wanted to do. Uh, And so it was really, I think, because of this excellent teacher whom I had had, and then because of that first experience in Japan. Great. So, so the book that we're going to be discussing today is focused on a mountain called Kimpusen, which is um, south of in central Japan, south of Kyoto, about eight, eighty miles, maybe. Um, though um, it's quite mountainous, so you it's not a straight shot to get there from Kyoto. Um, but 
How did you come to focus specifically on uh, this one mountain, Kimpusen? Well, as you can tell from what I just said about how I got interested in Japan and religion, I, I yeah. had this longstanding interest in mountains. Um, I grew up hiking, and, and that was something that I always enjoyed doing. And so um, when I ended up, I, I in the course of my um, graduate training, um, I kept being drawn to mountains. And I think Kimpusen in particular grabbed my interest in part because of a story that I had read in the process of uh, doing reading for my classes. And it was a story about um, a, a monk named Dolken or Nichizo. Uh, and this is supposedly um, a story that took place in the 900s. And this man went up into the mountains, uh, where, went into a cave, uh, performed rituals for a number of days and then he died. Uh, and when he died, he exited the cave and met a monk who brought him up to the top of this mountain, which was Kimpusen. And there, Dolken met Zao, who is the god of Kimpusen. Um, and in this particular story, he's identified as a bodhisattva. Uh, and Dokken receives this oracle from Zhao in the story, um, and he's told that he should change his name to Nichizo. And then another deity comes. Uh, in English, I translate his name as the um, ministerial deity of might and virtue. And uh, this fellow, he has a, 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 an alter ego. So during life, he was a man named Sugawara no Michizane, who is a very famous figure in literary and political history, um, who was deified after his death. So this character comes into this story with a different name. So this, uh, this celestial, who is also Michizane, takes... Doken, a.k.a. Michizo, on a tour. And they go, in different versions of the story, they go to heaven, but in all versions of the story, they also go to hell. And when they're in hell, they meet a dead emperor uh, who pleads with them. He says, oh, I'm suffering. Please tell the, tell the court um, that I'm in hell. And this is scandalous, right, to have the emperor in hell. Yeah. Uh, so, um, why is he in hell? He's in hell because he ordered Michizane's exile. So this deity who's taking Doken on this tour, um, has, has come to visit his nemesis, if you will, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or one of his nemeses. Um, and then the story ends. And so the idea is that then Doken or Nichizo comes back to life uh, or excuse me, I should say that the tour ends at that point. So Dokken or Nichizo comes back to life. Um, and then uh, we're given to understand he writes up his story uh, and that's the end. And, and, but it ends up in a court chronicle. Uh, so it's pretty clear that somehow this story, whoever may have written it, whether it was Dokken, Nichizo or somebody else um, did bring the story back to the central court. And I thought that story of this, um, death and 
a form of rebirth, um, this tour of heaven and hell from the mountaintop. It was such a good story that it just, it stayed in my mind for years. And so when it came time for me to choose a dissertation topic, uh, I ended up deciding to focus on Kimpusen because that had been the focus of this story that I just had never managed to get out of my mind. Mm. Um, so there was really, it was this, that narrative hook, right? Yes. Uh, at the same time, I had become interested in uh, political history and also in the lives of lay people. And with Kimpusen, I was able, because it was a mountain that became a important pilgrimage destination for members of the lay elite, you know, sort of the highest people in government. Mm-hmm. Because of that, there was a good degree of source material from the Heian period, um, 794 to 1185, for those who don't have a background in Japanese history. Um, and I was interested in the Heian period. So it was a way for me to bring together my interest in mountains, some really good stories, uh, an interest in political history, and the religious lifestyles of lay people. Hmm. Great. And... Um so, so, and, and it hasn't. I, I suppose it's also a very important mountain historically, and yet it hasn't been studied, studied much in English, mm-hmm. um, if at all. Um, so, great. So, so I, I, I want to get into the um, get into the content of the book now, um, beginning with the uh, first section. You've sort of divided the um, the book into three sections. The first one is um, comprised. Is uh, the first three chapters, and that section is called the Mountain Imagine. And here, you're sort of looking at how um, the mountain was viewed um, by, and particularly by um, pilgrims, uh, elite male lay pilgrims um, in the capital who made trips there. So, um, so in the first chapter, you discuss the way in which the mountain was imagined by these aristocratic male lay pilgrims, and central here is this opposition or distinction between the urban capital of Heian and the mountains that lay beyond the capital. Heian is uh, modern-day Kyoto. So what exactly is this distinction between the city and the mountain, and what was its significance for Heian elites, um, and in particular and in particular, in the context of pilgrimage? Well, I, I wanted, when I was thinking about how to organize the book, I wanted to have a section that really dealt with what people did, quote unquote, for real, you know, with their Mm -hmm. physical selves when they were at the mountain. So that's the second half uh, of, or second part of the book. And in this first part, I was trying to answer the question, why would the wealthiest, most powerful men in Japan choose to take off their silk robes and put on plain clothing, which is what they had to do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, undergo an ascetic regimen, which restricted their diet and their sexual behavior uh, for a couple of months prior to departure. Why would they do that? And then why would they climb on foot up this big tall mountain when they could have just stayed home and been comfortable. <laughs> um, and so that you know, to, to, to get at that answer, I really had to, to look at what was at stake in that distinction. Um, and uh, my take on that is that 
the mountains represented everything that the city was not. Um, and that by going out and climbing the mountain, the, these powerful men, and I should say that it was only men who were, at least in theory, allowed to climb the mountain. So the mountain was closed to female pilgrims um, or and to uh, women who might um, wish to reside there. So my take is that uh, these men were... For one thing, they were traversing the realm. Um, so the distance, the actual distance between the capital and the mountain was important uh, because it gave these men a way to go through on the way from the current cap, the then current capital of Kyoto. They would have to pass through the old capitals in the Nara Basin. So they'd go by all of the old capitals and then they'd go up into these mountains, which gave them this kind of kingly vantage point. Um, so that was one element. Uh, another element that was important in the pilgrimage dynamics was that the gods of the mountains were viewed as being particularly powerful. Um, thirdly, there was this idea that by doing practice in the mountains, people uh, could gain special powers. Mm. And especially these people were holy men, um, and sometimes holy women who were of, but usually they were of low status uh, and they may not have been terribly well educated. Um, and so in a sense, these, it was sort of like a, <laughs> I don't want to in any way minimize the amount of effort that pilgrims put into this, but it was mm -hmm. sort of weekend retreat. You mm -hmm. know, this was, the Kimpusem was a mountain. It was a substantial pilgrimage, and yet it was much closer than, you know, some of the other uh, possibilities. You know, these people weren't going to Mount Fuji, right? Right. Uh, so it was a way to become, in the book I use the term temporary holy men. So it was a way to um, do this kind of mountain practice, maybe lay claim to some special powers, certainly the kind of charisma um, that attended the uh, uh, process of the, the, that came with the acquiring of those special powers. Um, and so uh, then when the men returned from the mountain, they would command um, respect, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, to a certain extent, I think uh, Victor Turner, who was all about pilgrimage as, as a, a stage of liminality, you know, that you would go out, transform yourself, and then come back and be reintegrated into your home context, but have a um, increased status. I do think that that was going on mm -hmm. uh, in, in this case. So it was a way of um, enhancing your, uh, your status and of getting the protection of a particularly powerful pantheon. Mm. So there's this increase in um, interest among aristocrats in Kimbusen, and you have this, um, the practice of pilgrimage um, begins with mainly the, uh, the, initially the Fujiwara regents going, Fujiwara being this um, powerful family that controlled the, um, basically controlled Japan for some period. So, but you note that with the increase in the number of aristocrats making this pilgrimage, um, <laughs> and to other mountains and religious sites situated far from the capital, uh, the, this distinction that was so important between capital and hinterland, between city and mountain, between the sort of civilization of the capital and the wilds of the mountains, 
was sort of blurred. Um, so, and that they had to do things to basically maintain that distinction. So how did that play out? And specifically, um, what's the relationship of that to the later ban on women? Yes. Well, so we don't know when the ban on women starts, but that is, you, you've just laid out my argument. So I think that the process of all of these laymen, well, maybe I shouldn't say all of these laymen, but a, a goodly number of lay pilgrims trekking from the capital to the mountain with their entourages, giving gifts to the mountain. All of a sudden, you start having um, a lot of lay people at this place that's been uh, conceptualized as a socially separate, distinctive space. Um, and so my argument is that with the flows of people back and forth from the capital to the mountain, that alterity, that difference gets called into question. And I think that that's one of the key factors in the ban on women. In other words, I think the ban in women on women um, is, if not put into place, then emphasized and discussed and um, narrated in stories uh, as a way of reinscribing, of recreating, of maintaining and amplifying the mountain's reputation as a socially other world. Um, and we don't know, I think it's important to say that we don't know for sure when the ban on women started. We just know when the earliest evidence mm-hmm. <laughs> dates to. Uh, and so we know that at least from the 10th century onward, we have a ban in place on um But there are ongoing arguments about why. I think it's maybe less useful to look at the origins uh, of the ban since those are truly unrecoverable given the state of the source material and rather looking at uh, the social um, effects of that ban. And I think it's, to me, it seems quite clear that the major effect was to uh, make Kimpusen appear in the mind's eye as a radically other realm. Um, okay, so now, now another thing you address in the first chapter is the um, is all these sort of holy figures that come to be associated with um, with Kimpusen. And one of your arguments here seems to be that these figures don't fit neatly into, or Kimpusen itself doesn't fit neatly into um, categories such as Buddhist or Taoist or um, sort of Omyo, like uh, sort of Yin Yang and so forth. Um, so, so who are these figures that come to be associated with um, Kimpusen, and sort of? And how did they come to be associated with Kimbusen? And what's their significance, and particularly for um, aristocrats in the capital or for the sort of imagined Kimbusen? Yeah, that's a great question. It's also a tough one, right? Because uh, many of the sources that talk about these holy people are narrative source- sources. They're, they're stories. Um, and they're stories that are told uh, as if they are true, but that doesn't mean that they're in any way transparent documents of what really happened. Um, So when I'm talking about the holy people, um, especially holy men, again, we have this strong gender dynamic, but there are stories about women um, in that 
the, the region around Kimpusan. Uh, what really seems to be at stake is this emphasis on the idea, sort of getting people to buy into the idea that dedicated religious practice, oftentimes religious practice that involves, that has a strong ascetic bent, um, dietary restrictions, special clothing, things like that. Um, So this idea that ascetic practice and religious practice in the mountains brings special powers and special blessings that kind of it infuses you with the ability to work miracles. Um, so I think that uh, aristocrats uh, were drawn to these stories in part as a, a sort of a, a fantasy, right? In a sense, these holy people for the, the for the for the aristocrats who told and retold these stories, mm-hmm. um, these holy people become kind of you know examples or exempla, uh, but they're also alter egos. You know, there's, so there's this sort of um, like they're a little bit like superheroes today, you know, mm. for 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 children or even adults that they they represent the possibility, uh, the possibilities that are brought into being by religious practice, and I think that um, they represent ideas of uh, what one might do were one free from all of the constraints that we uh, operate under in everyday life. Okay. Great. So, um, so, so, so after after sort of covering um, the way and some of the ways in which um, Kimpusen is imagined um, from the vantage point of the capital, in the second chapter, you look at the local at the deities, the local pantheon atop Mount uh, atop Kimpusen, mm-hmm. um, and you show that these deities reflect the multiple sources of influence at play. They're neither unadulterated Buddhist deities, nor are they simply Japanese deities. Um, in fact, they seem to be a mixture of elements, be, uh, sort of creations created from a mixture of elements that come from Indian Buddhism, from East Asia, from Japan. And in this way, while the chapter introduces the reader to the specific characteristics of Kimpusen deities, it also speaks to this broader theme, namely the comb- combinatory character of Japanese Buddhism and Japanese religion. So central to the to the Kimpusen pantheon is this figure called Zhao, who you've already mentioned. So who or what is Zhao and what's he doing up on the Kimpusen? Yes. So like all of so I, I in the last question when you were asking about uh holy men and holy women, um I think I neglected to to reaffirm what you said, which is that these people were engaging in Buddhist practices alongside what we today would call Taoist longevity practices. They weren't worried about which quote unquote religion they belonged to. And Zhao similarly um, exemplifies this free play uh, and association across what we today think of as different religions. So Zhao literally, um, as his name, his, his name translates as King of the Treasury. And he continues to be worshipped at Kimpusen today, uh, as well as at other sites around Japan. Um, and as far back as we can tell, his identity is complex. A lot of research 
in Chizau tries to identify uh, specific sources for his character, his identity, and his appearance. Um, again, I'm not sure how useful that actually is. I prefer to think of him as uh, a deity who was always hybrid from the very beginning. So Zhao is very much a local deity. Um, stories about his beginnings have him erupting from the rock at the summit of the mountain. So he is of this place, of this mountain. At the same time, uh, from very early on, he's identified as a bodhisattva. And from very early on, he's identified as a kami, as a, um, a deity, in this case, an indigenous deity. And so Zhao, I think, exemplifies the possibility of being of belonging to multiple categories, of being both a bodhisattva and a kami. And also perhaps a dragon. <laughs> Uh, and also perhaps an ancient Indian king. He has all of these different identities and associations. Um, so he's a deity who's able to embody uh, contradictions and tensions, and he kind of he thrives on tensions. Um, he's not about reduction and uh, singularity. He's, he's a shapeshifter. Uh, and I think one of his... Uh, devotees from the Heian period put it really nicely that uh, this is a uh, something that I actually cite in the book. Um, a man named Minamoto no Masazane, who was a courtier, uh, when he he made a he offered a prayer at Kimpusen, and he says that the transformations of the kami, the indigenous gods, are boundless. And then he says the Buddha's responses are fathomless. It is the Bodhisattva Zao who combines these two. So he's combining the categories, Masazane that is, is combining the categories of Kami and Buddhas. But what makes Zhao so powerful is that he's able to be both. Great. So, um, and you also, in the chapter, we won't go over this right now, but you also uh, go into great detail about all the, some of the different um, relationships that Zhao has or associations he has with various deities and Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and so forth. Um, in, 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 now in the latter half of the chapter, you turn to two practices associated with Kimpusen, sutra burial and the creation of votive bronzes. Mm-hmm. Um, now you note that many scholars have seen the motive behind sutra burial to be an anxiety born of the knowledge that the final age of Buddhism, which many Japanese thought had begun in 1052, had finally arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a slightly different take on this, on the motives behind this practice. Would you first just say what sutra burial is, uh, how it was practiced on Kimpusen, and what you believe the motives behind this practice to be, at sure. least in the case of Kimpusen? Mm-hmm. So sutra burial is, you know, the the name given to the practice suggests is it's, it's the practice of burying sutras. Um, and in the case of Japan, what this entails is burying sutras uh, in the earth. So in other parts of the world, we find sutras buried um, under uh, stupas or pagodas. Uh, We find sutras interred in caves. Um, But in Japan, they're buried rather in the way that you might bury something that you were trying to hide or in the way that you might bury somebody who is deceased. Although by this time, um, 
cremation had become standard uh, for funerary practices. So we're not talking about, it, it doesn't look like um, a funeral burying. Um, we know that at some points uh, in Japan, for instance, um, once you start getting into the 12th century, uh, people would bury sutras uh, to donate the merit that they would generate by copying the sutras to the posthumous well-being of their parents. So they'd, they'd bury sutras so that their parents would become enlightened, um, their deceased parents would become enlightened. That's not what we see at Kimpusen. We also know that people would bury sutras because they were worried that the Dharma was coming to the end. There's this eschatological idea that was current uh, in Japan during the Heian period that the Dharma was coming to the end because the Buddha had died and um, the Dharma was gradually going to attenuate uh, prior to the coming of the next Buddha, Maitreya. So at Kimpusen, we see something uh, slightly different going on in all in the inscriptional evidence um, in the documentary evidence and in the narrative evidence, there is extremely little. I mean, in fact, there's there's really no evidence for any kind of anxiety about the end of the Dharma. Uh, instead, we find a lot of talk about Maitreya. Uh, and so Zhao, and this is an important aspect of his identity, Zhao is, was and still is understood by many to embody or incarnate Shakyamuni, the the Buddha of the past, and also Maitreya, the Buddha of the future. And sometimes people will say that he also incarnates um, Avalokiteshvara, uh, the Bodhisattva of mercy. Um, And in those cases, Avalokiteshvara is often called the Buddha of the presence, present, excuse me. So Zao is the Buddha of the past and the Buddha of the future. And in that respect, he's a link, right, to the the past and to the future. Um, And I think that what people were doing when they were uh, burying their sutras uh, at Kimpusen, we know this from inscriptions um, on sutra tubes, is in part trying to form a karmic tie with the coming Buddha, with the next Buddha, with Maitreya. So it's actually a hopeful gesture. Um, And there was this kind of, there was this tie uh, between um, the sutras, the person who buried them, and in all of the cases that I know of for Kimpusen, the sutras that are buried are hand copied by the person who buries them, right? So mm-hmm. there's like this, there's a physical or physiological even and a karmic tie between the barrier and the texts and then also to Zao and that will endure through time. So there's definitely a consciousness of time, but it's not an anxious worry about the end of the Dharma. Rather, it's this kind of uh, surety that um, the devotee will uh, have this physicalized ongoing connection to the mountain and its God that will last uh, for millennia. Mm. (laughs) So that, yeah, um, that actually reminds me of this sort of, um, this sort of idea of traces that you use throughout this book, but I think uh, maybe we'll mention that just a little later when we talk about what people were actually doing up on the mountain. Um, so, so in the last chapter of the first section, you talk about ritual regimes um, and you write, 
In ritual regimes, the most eminent nobles and royals used integrated sets of sites, rites, and texts to strengthen their rule and display their righteousness. Ritual regimes were shaped by the twin dynamics of emulation and competition. And so it seems what you're focusing on here is, and which you've already spoken to a bit, is why elite in the capital would make this two-week pilgrimage to Kimbusan in the first place. Um, and you're trying to understand this in the broader political and religious context and the roles of ritual and pilgrimage therein. So I guess the um, first question would be, what is a ritual regime? <laughs> um, and you note that each, you sort of, the way you're using it, you says each ritual regime has a signature site, rite, and text. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also describe the sort of five characteristics of a ritual regime. So what's a ritual regime? What's going on here? Well, a ritual regime, I think, it, first of all, it's important to realize that this is a, a phrase, it's a, it's a theoretical model that I cooked up, right? This isn't, it's not as though the people I'm writing about were running around saying, oh, this is my ritual regime. So this is sure, my sure. interpretive rubric, right? right. And I just be clear about that. Um, And I developed this model as a way to explain uh, the symmetry um, and the stable structure of religious practice over time. So what I was noticing is that the most powerful people would develop a set of uh, sites, rites, and texts. And so um, that would all go together. So to give an example, uh, Fujiwara no Michinaga, whom I call the regent extraordinaire because he's just amazingly famous uh, in Japanese history. Um, Michinaga was an exceptionally powerful man and he built a splendid temple near the capital. uh, And that was his signature site. What I mean by signature is that Michinaga was, if, if, if one mentioned Hojoji, this temple, one thought of Michinaga. And probably after a while, if one thought about Michinaga, one was thinking about Hojoji, right? So they became um, closely linked in uh, social memory, um, that, that, that is the patron and the site, And then what Michinaga did at this amazing temple is he deposited an amazing text. And that text was a um, copy of the Buddhist canon that had been imported from Song China. Um, That may not sound like much to us today, but at the time, uh, that was an incredibly precious, uh, wonderful treasure. So Michinaga had this, and and it was authoritative because it was a complete copy of the canon. This was all of the Buddhist scriptures. Michinaga put those texts, he was the only one to own a copy of the Sung Canon. What does he do with it? He puts it in Hojoji. So he's putting his his great Buddhist text in his great Buddhist temple. And then what does he do? He inaugurates great Buddhist rites at that temple. Uh, and those, my, I identify um, a set of 30 lectures on the Lotus Sutra as his signature rite. So there's this collocation, right, that the text, the rite, and the site all um, intersect, and all of them connote the patron and both symbolize and instantiate his 
uh, political authority and his social eminence. Kim Kusum becomes enters the picture there um, because my, my argument is that uh, the regents, Michinaga, uh, his father, his son, his grandson, um, started to use Kimpusen as a signature site. So it's not to say that other people didn't go to Kimpusen, but the regents were the highest status pilgrims to go to Kimpusen. Um, everybody knew when they would go. People knew what they did when they got there. Uh, and people paid attention to the fact that they went. And this was the most grandiose, the largest, the most ambitious pilgrimage that any of these men ever undertook. So um, Kimpusen then becomes a sort of a, a, a counterweight, if you will, and um, at a spatial remove to the signature uh, sites, rights, and texts of the capital. Um, and at Kimpusen, I think the, the site obviously is Kimpusen. <laughs> uh, the right, uh, I think, is is really sutra burial. Um, mm-hmm as part of the pilgrimage and the texts are the holograph sutras. And when I say holograph, what I mean is uh, sutras that the individual himself copied. So the, the sutras that the regents would bury at Kimpusen were all texts that they had personally sat down um, and copied. Um, and so like the uh, sites, rights and text in the capital, I think Kimpusen and the associated um, rituals uh, and texts comes to, again, symbolize and instantiate uh, the region's kind of uh, august uh, position. And, you know, I've been talking about social um, social majestification, right? But I don't want to say that any of this was not pious. I think that these folks were sincere. You know, they were doing this in part for the love of the Kami and the love of the Buddhas. Uh, so it wasn't just that they were glorifying themselves, they were also glorifying the gods and the Buddhas. And I think that that was uh, an important motivation for them. Mm-hmm. Great. So, um, no, I mean, I personally found the the whole ritual regime theoretical model very clear and illuminating and also seemed to explain why you sort of have different ruling groups having their sort of, their special kind of... Um, uh, sort of sacred site, sort of hmm. often, often the hinterland. Um, so, so in, so that kind of brings us to the end of the first section. Now, in the second section, uh, which you call the real peak, um, and here this is, of course, um, seems this is where the title of your book comes from: "Real and Imagined." You have sort of uh, the real place and what people are actually doing there, and then the sort of imagined um, hmm. space. But in and in this section. Um, you sort of look more closely at actual journeys to Kimpusen and what people did um, when they were there. So in chapter four, you uh, look at the the pilgrimage itself, mm-hmm. the drawing on uh, some aristocratic diaries, particularly those of Fujiwara no Michinaga and uh, Fujiwara no Moromichi. So I was wondering if you could just mention what the pilgrimage entailed. First, how did people prepare for it? And then what was the journey like? What are they doing? Are they just sort of, um, you know, walking from morning to night? Are they stopping places? Right. Uh, so noblemen um, kept daily records of their activities. And the reason that we still have these is that um, these were viewed as uh, kind of informational patrimony, if you will. Uh, it was really important for 
uh, eminent nobleman to be acquainted with ceremonial protocols of all sorts. And, and uh, these journals were um, key sources for that type of protocol. And so happily, um, we do have pretty good records of what people did when they were going to Kimpusen. Um, and we know that the first element was to, first you'd have to set the date for your journey. So you'd figure out when you were planning on going. And then um, you'd have to uh, observe uh, what were called the chosai or long abstentions. And in theory, these were 100 days of um, kind of abstinential practices. In point of fact, it was often less than that. It was, but it was a couple of months. Uh, so prior to your departure from the capital, if you wanted to go to Kimpusen, you had to, you would change residence. Uh, you'd move out of your, your usual uh, house. Um, in some cases, we know that people would move into their clients' houses. Um, and you would have to eat a vegetarian diet, or at least you were not, you weren't, you weren't supposed to eat meat. Um, and that may have meant that you could eat fish. That's not clear from the source material, but you weren't to be eating meat. Uh, you weren't to be eating um, spicy food, uh, and you were to abstain from sex. Uh, and then, uh, when it was time, and during this time, I should say, you would also be copying your sutras that you would bury at the mountain. And the reason for this is that, uh, all of these abstentions would purify you, right? So in this purified state, you would be writing, copying out these sutras. Uh, and for those sutras, you'd be using beautiful dyed, indigo dyed paper, um, and gold ink. So it was, it was quite, uh, an undertaking. Um, then when it was time to leave, uh, you and your train would put on plain clothes and you would set out from the capital riding a boat. Uh, then you would change to land transportation. Um, and it does seem that people uh, walked there. I don't have clear statements to that effect, but judging from the amount of time that it took people to traverse the distance, um, it seems to have been an overland on foot journey all the way uh, from the capital with the exception of the boat ride, of course, uh, down to Kimpusen. Um, and on the way, uh, you know, this is a period of time when there aren't hotels, right? There aren't hostels. Uh, so the party, the pilgrimage parties would stay at temples and shrines along the way. Usually um, they weren't staying in um in uh, lay people's houses, but rather at religious institutions. And so at each one of those religious institutions, they would hold uh, a, a comparatively small rite and um, give gifts along the way. So there was this kind of ceremonial uh, infrastructure, if you will, uh, to the journey to the mountain. And then once they got uh, to the peak at Kimpusen, um, there was a whole a series of rites that would culminate, well, maybe culminate isn't the right word, um, but that included sutra burial. So there was a large offering rite um, in which other sutras would be offered at the mountain. I think these probably went into basically the library or the sutra store. Uh, these were not hand, you know, copied by the primary pilgrim. They were, um, they were more gifts uh, to the monks um, and to the mountain. 
deities. Uh, and then people would do sutra burial. Now, the trick is, um, that I think is really interesting uh, about these pilgrimages is that as soon as the rituals were done, the pilgrims would turn around and head home. And as soon as they had crossed the Yoshino River, which um, runs across the top of the Ki Peninsula, Kimpusen uh, is on is just south of the town Yoshino um, on the Key Peninsula, south of Osaka. And um, the northern boundary, really, of the peninsula is this, this large river, the Key, Key River, the Yoshino River. And as soon as pilgrims would cross, cross the river on their way home, uh, they, they would mount horses. And so the trip home was much easier uh, and than uh, the trip down. Uh, and it's partly the comparison of the amount of time that it took to get home to the amount of time that it took to get there. Um, it's, it's from a comparison of that differential uh, that I'm drawing the conclusion that people were traveling on foot the whole way. Great. So that leads quite well into the next question I'd like to answer, which concerns what these um, aristocratic pilgrims are actually doing uh, on the summit of Kimpusen. And you mentioned that previous scholarship has often characterized um, these pilgrimages and particularly the sutra burial as um, motivated by personal devotion um, and sort of personal religious conviction. And you make an argument that actually one of the um, sort of the most grandiose ritual actually conducted atop Kimpusen was actually more related to state protection. So what's your argument here? How does this work? Yes. So following preliminary offerings, the pilgrims would make comparatively small scale offerings to local kami. And that was kind of the opening phase of the rituals. And then you'd get to the kind of the big show, which was a kuyo or offering rite. Uh, and the center that what was being offered during this Right was would be sets of uh, Buddhist scriptures, um, and as I mentioned, those would be being offered to the the pantheon and particularly to Zhao. But what's significant about those rites, I think, is that when you look at the actual protocol of uh, the ceremony, it matches that used for very large scale rites um, performed in the capital. Uh, and at major temples. Uh, and so it's a ritual form that is familiar from and matches with uh, regular rites of state protection um, that would be conducted in the capital. So there's the formal uh, resonance, right, or formal similarity. There's also the... Um, testimony of the pilgrims themselves. And so judging from, we have uh, prayers preserved that were um, created. They're, these are, these are not, um, these are not what we might think of as prayers in a kind of common sense, North American way, but these are actually liturgical texts, right? So they're formal texts stating the intentions and the purposes of these offerings. Um, and in these, and also uh, in some of the um, other documentary sources that we have, pilgrims will say quite clearly, I am dedicating uh, these five copies of the Benevolent King's Sutra for the benefit of, and it will be Prince such and so. So what we find happening is that these pilgrims are are um, dedicating sutras 
not the sutras that they're going to bury, but the sutras that they're offering to the benefit of the sovereign of the reigning emperor, uh, of um, other members of the royal family, um, for his own family. And you have to remember that these folks are, the, the, the pilgrims themselves are very high ranking um, men of really great influence. And so when they're seeking to protect their own family, they're not, that's actually the state, right? They're praying for the good fortune of the emperor and the regent uh, and for the ongoing um, benefit of the primary stakeholders in the court. So there's this, there, it's not to say that there is no personal interest in this portion of the right, but rather to say that these are the most powerful men in the country, and what they're trying to do is maintain the status quo uh, in this portion of the offering rights. Great. So, um, okay, so that brings us to, um, that sort of brings us probably to the end of our discussion of the Fujiwara period of um, sort of pilgrimage to um, Kimpusen. Now, in chapter in chapter six, you talk about uh, Emperor Shirakawa's pilgrimage to Kimpusen in 1092, and in chapter seven, which begins section three of your book, um, you talk about the conflict between the Temple Kofukuji and Kimpusen and the eventual um, incorporation of Kimpusen into Kofukuji. But what I what I wanted to ask you to, to address. Um, is more is something that is a theme that runs through both chapters six and seven, which is sort of the not the downfall of um, <laughs> of uh, Kimpusen, because of course it continues to survive and thrive right. in a different guise. But um, what happened? But you describe this shift, whereas the Fujiwara, who was this uh, again for non-Japan people, was a sort of family that um, one branch of which controlled the um, basically controlled Japanese government for um, up until about the mid or late 11th century. And then you have a shift in power to another group. And with that shift in power, you get a shift in pilgrimage focus from Kimpusen to Kumano. So could you just sort of describe what's happening there and sure. and how Kimpusen loses its place as favored pilgrimage destination for capital aristocrats? Right. So what happens is that um, retired Emperor Shirakawa, who is the first of the really great retired emperors, ushers in a political regime um, or a, sort of a, a mode of government that uh, political historians call the Insei. Um, and one of the ways that he does this is by competing successfully with the regents. And he does that competing, not just in the realm of what we usually think of as politics, but also in the spheres of ritual and I think also space. So when Shirakawa comes to Kimpusen in 1092, I think he was coming on purpose to imitate and outdo the regents. So he comes to Kimpusen um, to show uh, that he is uh, as powerful even more powerful than the regents. And he also sets about uh, making um, a set of gifts and endowments and basically trying to set up his own kind of his own men at the mountain to make his own mark on the mountain and to kind of 
overwrite uh, regental influence at Kimpusen. Um, and then thereafter, he uh, shifts his attention to Kumano. And so what Shirakawa starts to do from then on is to make repeated pilgrimages. He goes to Kimpusen once, but he goes to Kumano over and over again. And Kumano is a site that's even further south. Uh, and that becomes Shirakawa's favored pilgrimage destination. And so it comes to symbolize his ascendancy in the same way that Kimpusen had symbolized the regent's ascendancy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then other retired emperors after him follow um, with the practice of making pilgrimage to Kumano, not to Kimpusen. Right. Right. So, so the regents from generation to generation had gone to Kimpusen. And then when the retired emperors kind of rise to power, if you will, uh, they go from generation to generation to Kumano, uh, a little bit further south, um, same region, different site. Yeah, right. Great. So, um, so sort of going back to your model of uh, ritual regime, it's sort of a shift in ritual regime and with that a, a shift in signature sites, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, there's a corollary that in the capital region or in the area around the capital, the retired emperors are also building their own signature temples there. Mm -hmm. So they're developing um, sites in the capital and the corollary to that in the the sort of the distant component of their ritual regime is Kumano. That becomes their ritual center. Mm -hmm. Great. So I just want to, um, as, as a final, as a final question, I'd, or sort of topic of discussion, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you about the last chapter. There's an epilogue, but the last mm-hmm. chapter, being chapter eight, you address um, you address the way in which Kimpusen was reimagined and was thus able to survive as political and circumstances changed. And in this chapter, you focus on the 12th and 13th centuries um, after the aristocratic pilgrimages had largely ceased, mm-hmm. um, and Specifically, you're focusing on Engi or these temple origin legends, right? Um, or and specifically, you're focusing on a certain set of Engi. So, what do you sort of say something about uh, these sources and um, who wrote them? I guess in some cases we don't know who wrote them, but what are their primary concerns? What are these texts trying to do? Okay, so I see the the texts, these Engi, as a textual effect of institutional changes. Um, And those institutional changes are, according to me, precipitated by retired Emperor Shirakawa's 1092 pilgrimage. So following that 1092 pilgrimage, um, a war breaks out between Kimpusen and Kofukuji, which is a powerful temple in the Nara Basin. And Kimpusen loses. Uh, so Kofukuji is quite uh, successful at subjugating Kimpusen, um, but that, as you might imagine, sets up a kind of attention, right? Um, on the one hand, uh, men, religious practitioners who have been associated with Kimpusen are trying to uh, articulate in compelling ways a religious identity that is not subsumed under Kofukuji. 
Uh, on the other hand, what you start having is people from Kofukuji uh, and its uh, other temples that it controls in the Nara Basin um, are starting to come to Kimpusen to engage in religious practice. Uh, and here, I think Kimpusen starts to function um, as kind of the other world, uh, the source of power for uh, low-ranking um Buddhist monastics in the same way that it had uh, fulfilled a similar function for uh, powerful lay pilgrims, you know, a century or two earlier. Um, So at that point in time, you have lots of uh, Buddhist religious practitioners going to Kimpusen um, on effectively on pilgrims. Pilgrimages, you know, again, they're these kind of these retreats, you know, they're maybe short term uh, journeys. And Engi come out of this interchange, this uh, ebb and flow and and the tensions between the mountain and uh, its new uh, monastic overlord, um, Kofukuchi, down in the lowlands. So the Engi um, do things like uh, define and celebrate uh, lineages of practitioners who are mountain experts, right? These are guys who are not uh, high-ranking elite scholastic monks, but they're specialists in mountain practitioners, and they have their own lineages, say, Enki. Um, The texts also work to canonize um, pilgrimage routes, saying that these particular sites are really important locations for ritual practice. This is what you should do there. Um, they introduce um, uh, and um, elaborate on and give uh, kind of backstories to a mountain pantheon. Uh, so there are there's this range of ways in which um, Engi are working to um, create or reimagine the mountains as sites for religious authority that isn't accessible anywhere other than the mountains, um, and they're doing this for people who are kind of Kimpusen constituents uh, in the, the sort of what you might, the what's the right way of putting this, um, who are kind of Kimpusen residents, but they're also doing it for Kimpusen enthusiasts who are disenfranchised members of the lowland community and who are looking to the mountain um, as a way to uh, gain, um, gain power for themselves. Great. So um, that, I think, brings us close to the end. As a last question, I wanted to ask if there's anything that you're working on at the moment. Um, I mentioned early on that you just co-edited this really interesting uh, special issue of the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies um, on Engi, um, this sort of this uh, literary genre that we just been that you just mentioned. Uh, I have two monograph length projects that I'm working on, one very slowly. Uh, and that one is uh, tentatively titled Kings, Ladies, and Literati. Uh, and it's about the religious lifestyles of lay aristocrats. Um, and I conceive of that as a series of biographical case studies looking at the everyday religious practices of uh, two men and two women um, who inhabited the uh, aristocracy, but who had different statuses. So I'm looking at um, a royal consort. I'm looking at a retired emperor. I'm looking at a literati, literatus from the lower 
uh, ranks of the aristocracy. Um, and in that book, I'm, that's a clear continuation of my interest in um, lay religious practice uh, from real unimagined. The other one is really a left turn, uh, and it looks at uh, religious themes and imagery in um, contemporary uh, Japanese picture books, uh, or really more accurately, picture books published between 1950 and the present. Uh, so that is a really different topic, um, but it is one that is a lot of fun and that I find uh, my training and, and prior research on classical religious culture is really uh, very helpful um, in terms of identifying and thinking through um, images of the past in contemporary culture and the way that the religious past uh, is used as a kind of a moral resource mm-hmm. um, or a kind of an orienting compass uh, for contemporary Japanese in terms of uh, educating and acculturating and entertaining children. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I think I actually saw you give a talk on um, that, that topic some uh maybe last year at a conference, but no, that, well, we will look forward to both those monographs, the, uh, another, um, and, um, and also I should mention for, uh, listeners that there's also, um, there's a lot in the book that we didn't cover. We've really just skimmed the surface. Um, and in particular for anyone interested in Shugendo, um, there, uh, has, has a very interesting argument in the epilogue about the relationship between, um, later organized forms of Shugendo and the Omine um, mountain range and its institutions. So with that, um, I want to thank you, um, Heather, for speaking with me today, and also to thank our listeners for tuning in. That's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.